Welcome to the Damascus Road Podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. Every major holiday or birthday, my kids get the same thing in the mail. Inside the envelope addressed to them is a card commemorating the event as well as a single crisp $1 bill. It's not from my mother-in-law who's awesome at those sort of things. If it was from them, her, she would, they would get like a gift basket or a collection of presents. No, it's from Megan's great aunt, Kathy. And our kids love not only getting mail, but having their own money. When they have their own money, they don't have to beg us for candy or toys or the cereal that catches their eyes. I'm looking at you, Lucky Charms. They can buy something for themselves. Occasionally, I'll take them to the dollar store or to the dollar section of Target that they strategically place in the front of the store and let the kids pick out something to buy with their dollars. For Aiden, it's often a car or a truck of some kind. For Roland, his first purchase was his own tape. Not a toy, tape. Because we wouldn't let him just use all of our tape. He wanted to have his own tape that he could use for all of his crafting needs. So he can take the tape, attach the cardboard that he cuts out and make his own incredible creations. Now on Target recently, they picked out bath paint, which is really just brightly colored and slightly thicker body wash. There's really not much painting or body washing happening when this comes out in the house, but each kid got to choose their own color and they're delighted to have it. And when they find the item they want, they take their single dollar and they march up to the cashier to pay with their own money. They are so proud of themselves and thankful to great aunt Kathy. They don't realize they don't quite have enough to pay for their $1 item. I've yet to explain to them the complexities of sales tax, but they bring their $1 and I make up the difference. Now, sometimes they'll see something that catches their eye, like the newest Octonauts toy or Lego set, or if it's Aiden, just chocolate, and they will want to buy it with their dollar. Unfortunately, these items are often much more than a single dollar, so I'll say something like, okay guys, we can add it to your birthday or Christmas list. Now, the number of items that they've wanted to add to this list that have never made it onto the list is quite extensive. And they may have realized this now because when I say that's not in the budget right now, let's add it to your birthday or Christmas list, they'll respond, it's okay, daddy, I can buy it, I have a dollar. They are more than willing to bring what little money they have and put it all on the table to get what they want. And sometimes with my help, I add a little to their meager offering and they walk home with chalk or wall ninjas or knockoff Play-Doh because the real Play-Doh is too expensive. Well, I know that the money isn't endless, that it doesn't grow on trees. They, on the other hand, are convinced that mommy and daddy have the money to buy anything they need or want. And they're up for pitching in themselves. They'll bring what they have without hesitation. Megan and I, on the other hand, often find ourselves struggling a bit with a scarcity mindset. We know the budget can only stretch so far and buying that toy or gum or figurine means there will be less for the more necessary items in our lives. God has provided abundantly and faithfully to us, but we still want to, to steward the resources we have well and be wise with the gifts that God has entrusted to us. And in many moments, it's easy to wonder if we'll have enough for the next time. It's easy to fall into fear and scarcity or even into comparison. 
Others don't have to budget as closely as we do. Or wouldn't it be nice to take that vacation or buy that shiny new toy or appliance or car like they did? And naturally, we rarely compare ourselves to those who have a harder time. It's almost always the other way around, to people who seem to have it better off than us. Have you ever been there yourself, caught in scarcity or in comparison, paralyzed by one or the other? The truth is neither scarcity or comparison serves us well. They can create discontent and fear and ultimately can keep us from bringing what we have to the table and trusting God with the rest. Today's episode of the holy man Elisha's story of serving God and seeing God do amazing things features a woman who is at the end of her rope. She's desperate for a solution to her circumstance and comes to the person she thinks she can help her, Elisha. Little does she know that Elisha can't really help, but God can. When she brings what she has to the table and steps back letting God do what only God can do. The story picks up in the first verse of 2 Kings 4. One day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out, my husband who served you is dead. And you know how he feared the Lord, but now a creditor has come, threatening to take my two sons as slaves. What can I do to help you? Elisha asked. Elisha is understandably concerned. The family of one of his apprentices is in trouble. Elisha's apprentice has been promoted to glory and left his wife and children without provision. Even worse, he's left unpaid debts behind. Elisha was probably like Eliakim or Elibra, all these names, of course, in this community of prophets start with Eli. I told you to get on top of your gambling habits. Your money is owning you instead of you owning your money. We were gonna dig into this together, but now your wife has to pick up the pieces without any way to provide for herself. And your boys are in danger of being taken as slaves. This is a terrible situation and a good illustration of what the Old Testament means about the impact of generational sin on a family. Here's how it's phrased in Deuteronomy. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Now the Bible talks about this idea, it's often is phrased as the sins of the father. And when we read it in isolation like this, we often read it as punishment for God, but really it is often most normally the natural consequences of our actions and just how life works. Our poor decisions and actions follow us and our families. When we have debts, someone has to pay. If we abuse alcohol, it imp impacts not just us, but our kids. It's why there are support groups for the adult children of alcoholics. The way we deal with conflict, patterns of unfaithfulness and divorce, avoidance of responsibility, poor financial decisions, they don't just impact us. There's a ripple and family patterns can be very hard to break. If you read Kings, which we're looking at together now, or Chronicles that detail the lives of the monarchs of Israel and Judah, we see bad king after bad king, especially in Israel, like with Ahab, who's followed by his son Joram from the ditch digging episode last week. It's an incredibly hard pattern to change. Not only do our decisions ripple and impact our lives and families due to natural consequences, since God is the source of all love and life, living disconnected from that source leads us away from love and life, and those consequences are significant. But those consequences, thankfully, aren't the end of the story. Let's read the whole verse from Deuteronomy. 
I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children to the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Now, a thousand generations here is a long time. It's not actually specific, but rather means a really, really, really long time. That's a colloquial way of saying, like, indefinitely. God's grace and love far outweigh the consequences of our actions. Thank God this is so in our lives because we need the grace and love that is secured for us at the cross of Jesus. I think about my maternal grandfather who became a Christian and the ripple effect that had on my family. Instead of alcohol, abuse, and anger, Dorm and Eugene followed broke family patterns and chose to follow the way of Jesus. Not only did his life change, but the lives of his children and his wife, who also chose Jesus all the way to the 11 grandchildren and the great-grandchildren he now has, of which there are 15, with the number ever increasing. While we have some family patterns we still need to break, the blessing of a heritage of faith like this is incredible. And it happened because one man shared his life and faith with my grandfather, and my grandpa responded with a surrendered life and faith in Jesus. Back to Elisha and the widow in the story. He asks a normal question, what can I do to help you? But before the widow even has a chance to respond, Elisha blurts out, tell me, what do you have in your house? Now let's, let's, let's pause here, right? Because if the widow had anything in her house that could have helped her, it's likely she already would have used it. She is coming to Elisha, a desperate woman who needs help because she doesn't have anything of value to pay off these debts that have come due. Her son's freedom is at risk. But Elisha knows God, and he knows God can make our nothing or our next to nothing into something incredible. Elisha has seen God work miracles, and even an unexpected and admittedly slightly crazy question, what do you have in your house? Even that can lead somewhere. This reminds me of a similar scene with Jesus and his disciples. There was a crowd of 5,000 men listening to Jesus. And at the time, that's what they counted, but if each man had a wife and a child there, which was common, there were actually 15,000 people in the crowd that day listening to Jesus all day. And the people were hungry. Apparently, no one had planned for a day with Jesus with, with a lunch or any kind of provisions. No one but one boy. Of all the people in this crowd, that boy had made his lunch before heading out to hear Jesus that day. And when Andrew discovered that boy with five barley loaves and two fish, he had a crazy idea. A bit like his brother, Peter, he blurted it out. Then Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Even in the face of this impossibly large crowd, Andrew couldn't keep his discovery to himself. Someone brought food, Jesus. Maybe we can do something with that. Maybe, I mean, I don't know. Now I'm feeling a little dumb. No matter how you slice that bread, it's only going so far. Sorry, that was a really, really bad idea, guys. I don't know why I said that. I don't know about you, but I have blurted out bad ideas before. Ideas can enter my mind and sometimes my mouth opens before I realize how bad of an idea it is. At Creative Planning Team, where we brainstorm creative elements to our worship services, I often share bad ideas or really outdated ideas. And sometimes I even say, out loud, this isn't the best idea, maybe I shouldn't share it, but then I can't help myself and I still say it. And sometimes that's the end of it and people kind of look at me and we move on. But sometimes those bad ideas are better than I think. Or 
actually they spur someone else to a much better idea. And that's awesome too. And when Jesus is around, five loaves and two fish can feed thousands. And we read the story in John about the feeding of the 5,000. It should remind us of a similar story in the Jewish scriptures. But we often miss these connections because we don't know the Old Testament all that well. And certainly Jesus is the center of everything. But we know, when we know a little bit of history, some context, there's a level of richness and meaning that deepens and connects the story of God and his people throughout history. This scene with Jesus and, and Andrew and the boy with the fish and loaves should remind us of a story about a widow who is in need and Elisha's question, tell me, what do you have in the house? The widow responded, nothing at all except a flask of oil. If I had anything worth selling, I would have already sold it, Elisha. I don't have anything to bring. I'm down to my last flask of olive oil. And I can hear the unspoken words that Andrew voiced thousands of years later go through her mind. But what good is that? It's not enough. I don't have anything I can bring. If I could do anything, I wouldn't be here. And it's easy to find ourselves in the same situation as the widow, trapped in a scarcity mindset. We're paralyzed by fear. What we have to bring doesn't seem good enough. It's such a small amount, just a flask of oil, just five loaves and two fish, just a single crisp $1 bill. Just my meager gifts, just my small amount of time, just my bad ideas. It's just me. And instead of focusing on God, we focus on ourselves. We aren't enough. We are just almost, I mean, something. We can't do it. We have nothing to bring. But what if God performs miracles with what we do bring? What if our meager offerings plus God are all that were ever needed? Sometimes it's not the scarcity that gets us. Sometimes it's the comparisons. We fall into a comparison mindset. We don't think of what we have to offer because it's not as good as what someone else has to bring. They're gifted or beautiful or smart or wealthy or wise or something that's better than us in every way. So we don't offer anything. We don't bring what we have because what we have isn't enough. But our God delights to be our strength when we are weak, to show us and to show up that, that the reality is it's always been God working. It's always been his blessing and his power and he loves for us to acknowledge him and to give him the glory. When we have little to bring, there's no doubt that God is the one who comes through. What if God performs miracles with what we bring? What if our meager offerings plus God are all that was ever needed? Or maybe you aren't like that. Maybe instead of scarcity or comparison, you have a savior mindset. Maybe you think God and others need me. I'm gifted and important. I have incredible things to offer. God's lucky to have me and my friends and acquaintances should be honored to know me. Now, we probably wouldn't admit that we think that, but some of us may, if we're really honest with ourselves. And we need to let that go as well. There's only one savior and Jesus has that covered. He doesn't need us, but he delights to work in and through us. Not so that we can save, but so that he can.
And no matter what we have to bring to God, it's good to remember that what we bring is always imperfect. Whether we find ourselves in scarcity or comparison or savior mode, the equation is always our meager offerings plus God equals something incredible. But that only happens when we bring our offerings to Jesus and we let God do what only God can do, multiply, magnify, miracles. When Elisha heard that she had a little oil, he was confident God could do something incredible with her meager offering and make his dumb idea into something great. And Elisha said, borrow as many empty jars as you can from your friends and neighbors. Then go into your house with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. And she did it. She didn't question what seemed to be a little crazy. She knew Elisha, that he was trustworthy and that he was a man of God. And more importantly, Elisha knew that God was good and trustworthy and powerful and just. And that our meager offerings plus God are all that was ever needed. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. When she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell the olive oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on what is left over. Not only did they have enough to pay the debts, but there were leftovers, enough for them to live on. God took their meager offering and multiplied it miraculously. And everyone they borrowed a jar from heard the story because they weren't getting those jars back anytime soon. They were filled. God had done a miracle and it was a glory to behold. Now, do you remember the story of the feeding of the 5,000? Do you remember how many leftovers there were from that boy's five loaves and two fish? So when they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. From five barley loaves to 12 baskets. Now I don't know what happened with those 12 baskets, but I can just imagine the boy who packed a lunch that day to see Jesus, apparently the only one in the whole crowd, coming home to his family with a few of those baskets. Maybe even he lugged all 12 of those home. And he's excited when he gets home. He says, Mama, Mama, you aren't going to believe this. But Jesus took that lunch I packed, though you weren't even sure I needed it because Aunt Agnes told you about the wedding she was at where Jesus turned water into wine. You didn't think I needed anything, but I took that lunch. And he took that lunch I packed, and the most amazing thing happened. He gave, I gave him my food, which was enough for me and maybe a couple others, and I watched Jesus do a miracle. It fed 15,000 people with my lunch. And he sent me home with the leftovers. I gotta go see Jesus more. I just gave him my lunch and I watched him do what only he can do. Surely he's the Messiah, the son of the living God. And we have food for us and the whole village for a few days. How incredible is that? That boy had a front row seat to see what Jesus was going to do. He brought what he had and then he stepped out of the story and just watched the master of life, the son of God, the hero of the great story, take his meager offering and make it more than enough. He saw the abundance and graciousness and care of God. But to see it, he had to bring what he had. 
He had to give it to Jesus. He had to get out of the way. He entered the great story. And 2,000 years ago, we still talk about him, not because the boy had such a great gift, but because he brought what he had and he gave it to Jesus. Now, I don't know if I would have acted in the same way as that boy, or if I would have done what Elisha asked the widow to do. Would I have gotten all of those jars? Or would I have limited God's provision by not getting every jar I could find? It's similar to last week. Would I have stopped digging dishes, ditches and had less water? And we rarely have someone like Elisha giving us clear directions from God. So it's hard to apply this story or even last week's story exactly to our lives. Because the point isn't to go home and collect jars and start pouring your oil. But there are two things we can do and learn from in this story. The first is that we can fight the scarcity mindset in our lives. At first, the widow said she didn't have anything. She had nothing to give. But we need to remember that God is a God of abundance and provision, not of scarcity. We need to fight the fear that if I give what I have, I'll have nothing left. Because in God's economy, there is more than enough. He is a God of abundance. He has cattle on a thousand hills. He created it all. And if he cares for it all, he will care even for you. Jesus encourages us this way in his Sermon on the Mount. Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So let's start to fight the scarcity mindset that makes us fearful. There will never be enough and unwilling to give to others or to God. We may not receive everything we want, but we will have what we need and we can be content with what we have. Megan will dive into this a little bit more next week. So come back and explore that together. And the truth is there's one really simple practice that you can do to start to free yourself from a scarcity mindset and it's called tithing. Finding freedom from the scarcity mindset is more than just an internal change. It impacts our bank statements too. Just as God has given us the spiritual practice of the Sabbath to learn to live in rhythm with our time and our schedules, he has given us the practice of tithing to help us understand that everything we have is a gift from God and will ultimately be returned to him and to combat the scarcity mindset that tells us we don't have enough. Tithing is the exercise and action we can take to develop a trusting, God-centered, generous heart when it comes to our money and possessions, where we offer what we have meager as it may be. Not many Christ followers today like to say things like, oh, tithing is in the Old Testament and is a part of the law, so we can disregard it now because times have changed. Or they claim they are tithing in other ways, with their time and talents, but don't do anything financially. When we fail to tithe financially, we reveal that we don't trust God with our money and for his provision. When we don't tithe, we fail to be the people of trust and of generosity that God longs for us to be. When we don't tithe, there is a good chance scarcity still has us in its grip. 
Now perhaps money has been hard for you. Maybe you feel like you can never get ahead. Maybe some practical help is needed in this area and we would love to help you with that. But it is also possible that you need to trust God with your money and begin to practice tithing. And maybe, just maybe you'll discover that God will do what he says and you will experience blessings. When the boy surrendered his lunch to Jesus, there was no guarantee that he would see a crumb back of that bread. It would have been much safer and more secure for him to hold tightly to his lunch, stuffing it under a shirt, because if he gave it away, wouldn't that mean he would go hungry? But with the tithe, God is telling us that 90% of your income with my blessing is more than 100% of your income without my blessing. You will discover that you have more than enough and you will grow in trust and cultivate a generous heart. Everything we have is from God. And tithing is not a burden or a rule, but it's one of God's greatest gifts, a practice to develop trusting, generous, God-centered hearts. It is a practice to free us from the grip of scarcity. Now, I know that I have been evasive in this area in my life, and I want to be open about that. There were times that I didn't tithe at all. I was raised tithing. I would put money in the offering plate when I was growing up. But when I got to college, I stopped because I wasn't making any money. At least that's what I told myself. The truth was, I didn't make any money when I was a little kid either. I was tithing on the money my parents gave me, which God had already given to them. Nothing had really changed. I still had some money. I was still spending money and going to movies or eating out or buying video games. If you don't make much more or have a job, I encourage you to ask yourself this question. If I'm spending money, am I using any of it for God's kingdom work? If money is going out, why am I not giving any of it to God? If I feel like I can't give any of my money to God, am I caught in the grip of a scarcity mindset? Do I believe that if I don't clutch at my small flask of oil, my five loaves and two fish, my one crisp dollar bill, that I won't have enough for me? I didn't tithe in college. I didn't recognize the that not letting my relationship with God touch my bank account meant that I wasn't fully letting God touch my heart. I wasn't trusting God with my money and provision. It wasn't until I was out of college that I started tithing again, and I have never once regretted it. I've had some lean times, certainly, but tithing is a part of my life now, whether the house is full of barrels of oil or I only have one flask. It's not a part of my income, it's the first part that I offer to God not a, well, I'll give if I have extra. I trust him that my 90% with his blessing is more than the 100% without it. And the truth is, Megan and I give more than 10%. We give here at Damascus Road and we support missionaries who are serving God elsewhere. We don't do that legalistically, we do it joyously. We trust God and I have never had reason to doubt that decision. Time and time again, God has done Elisha oil miracles and Jesus fish and loaves miracles in our lives, magnifying our meager offerings into more than enough. It's always unexpected and more than enough. And even when our budget has been very tight, there is no part of me that thinks the solution is to clutch our fish and loaves closer. Because the practice of tithing has rooted my heart and oriented me to trust in God and his provision and not in my scarcity mindset and fear of providing for myself. 
I have never regretted tithing and I don't think that you will either. I don't tell you this for any reason other than to be transparent and honest, that this is something that Megan and I practice and others practice here in our church. And we are more trusting and generous and God-centered because of it. And it isn't the end of the giving, it's just the beginning. Because when you start to tithe, God loosens the grip and giving is much easier. And I invite you into this adventure and to accept God's invitation in this area. And if you do, you'll start to find freedom from the scarcity mindset and begin to live in generosity towards God and towards others. The second thing I think that we can take away from this, let's stop comparing ourselves to others and evaluating our meager gifts compared to someone else's abundance. It doesn't do us any good. It keeps us from loving others well and participating in the life Jesus has invited us into. Remember the equation, our meager offerings plus God equals something incredible. Let's bring what we have to Jesus. If you think I want to be a blessing to my family, to my church, to my workplace, to Tucson, maybe to the world, but you know that you're a one flask of oil sort of girl or a five loaves and two fish sort of guy, take heart. God used what that widow had, meager as it was. Jesus multiplied those boys, fish and loaves. What if God will use what you bring in your brokenness, in your imperfection, bring what you have and give it to Jesus and then sit back and watch what God will do with your offering. Bring what you have, your insufficiency and all, give it to Jesus, get out of the way and you may just discover that you have something left, more than enough, maybe even and abundance. And when we bring what we have, we get a front row seat to the bigger story, to the work of God. In humility and service, in joy and love, we give without agenda or ambition, but not without regard for our family and our well-being. We don't sacrifice ourselves for everyone else. Jesus already did that. He's got it covered and he's got you covered too. Don't do ministry or work or service and have nothing left for your family and be malnourished in time and care. Some of the time what we can bring is meager, not only because of our imperfection, but also because of our limits. We don't have to be the hero of the story. Jesus has that covered, but we do get to be a part of the story. And it starts with us bringing what we have and giving it to Jesus and then letting it go. We don't control it. We don't direct it. We don't tell Jesus what to do with our loaves and our fish. We offer them to him freely and we let him do more than we could ever ask or imagine. Because some of the time our imagination is limited when we ask Jesus to do something, we don't understand the great things that he could have done. Give it to Jesus and let Jesus do what only he does. Because like Aiden and Roland, we only have a single dollar to offer. And even when we think the dollar is enough, our Heavenly Father still steps in and covers the debt that we owe. And sometimes we bring our dollar not to the dollar store, but to something bigger, to the world that needs Jesus, that longs for a kingdom of love and justice, life and peace that is only found in Christ. Even if we only have a dollar and the price is really high, let's bring our contribution to Jesus and trust that our meager offerings plus God equals something incredible.
Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that uh, we find ourselves fearful about giving what we have to you. We're fearful about being too generous. We admit that we look at others and see that they have so much more and it makes it easy to excuse the fact that we aren't bringing what we have to the table or it makes us feel so inadequate that we don't feel like we can bring everything. And some of us need to confess that some of the time we uh, can take on a safer mindset and feel like we're helping everyone so much, but we don't have anything left. And we're trying to take your job, Jesus, and you are the savior. You are the one who laid your life down for us and took it back up again so that we can die to this life and rise again with you, Lord. May we be people like the widow, like the boy in the story, and bring what little we have, give it to you, and trust that with you all things are possible. Thank you for your graciousness, for your faithfulness, for your provision in my life. We have shown over and over that this is true. May we come to know this, not just intellectually, but personally, in our lives as we bring what we have to you and get back and watch what you do with it. Thank you, Jesus, for being more than we can ever ask or imagine. It's in your holy and precious name I pray, amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at damascusroadtucson.com.